As we remember, September 11th, 2001 this week, episode 427, Blinded by Fear, a unique 9-11 survival story. Michael Higson. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast. Hi, I'm Adam Lewis Walker, founder of Awaken Your Alpha, the number one personal leadership podcast that is also a best-selling book, Awaken Your Alpha, Thousand Tactics to Thrive, and also a TEDx talk for how to rise up. You can see a theme here, but please do check these out. If you like the talk, if you like the podcast, you will love the book. The book is the best of the best, and it's available on Amazon. This podcast is brought to you by The Talk Accelerator, helping thought leaders increase influence, income, and impact by achieving their talk. How to secure and smash your own TEDx talk. If you'd like to find out more about how you can get onto the red spot, please do head over to talkaccelerator.com. That's talk, X-C-E-L-E-R-A-T-O-R.com. Get to the podcast. On September 11th, 2001, a blind man escaped the World Trade Center by walking down 78 flights of stairs with his guide dog. Days later, America fell in love with Mike and Roselle and the special bond that helped them both survive one of the country's darkest days. Immediately after the 9-11 tragedy, Michael was featured on the Larry King Show. And to quote Larry King, Michael Hingson is an international hero, honored and awarded by top organizations worldwide. This media exposure changed the course of Michael's life and launched him into a speaking career that has spanned over a decade. He now travels the world. Before the COVID situation, he traveled the world as a keynote and inspirational speaker. I'm really happy to have him on the show today. We're gonna to be talking about fear and being blinded by fear. Michael, are you ready to awaken your alpha today? I am, always ready. That was a quite a different introduction I did today. Is there anything you'd like to add or highlight? Well, I think you hit the, the real major point, which is because of COVID-19, not traveling, um, and um, having the honor of, of people like you asking me to come and be on, on podcasts. But more important, I think, uh, for me, it has caused me to need to go back and look at what do I do now? Because for the next little while, and I don't know how long that little while will be, but for the next little while, I'm not going to be traveling and doing motivational or keynote speeches. Mm -hmm. I won't be talking about the things that I usually discuss, which is, uh, which is topics like trust and teamwork, leadership, moving on from September 11th. And I realized that all of those have a, a common theme in a way, even though I never really verbalized it in talks, and that is fear. Mm. Because what happened on September 11th was totally unexpected. And we as a, as a species tend not to like change, and we certainly don't like ne negative, especially unexpected things. And the problem is that all too many people on September 11th, when you mentioned this, were blinded by fear. And what I mean by that is not a pun on the fact that I happen to be blind, but rather when we become afraid, we tend to, if we really become afraid, we tend to not see what is going on around us. We lose all of our sense of perspective. And as a result, we often lose the ability to see all the things that we should be seeing that would help us make better decisions. After September 11th, some people were so afraid that they said, and still say, I won't fly on an airplane because it could be hijacked by terrorists. Mm. Even though the probability is extremely low, um, they say that. And today we have a different kind of situation. It's not really so much COVID-19, although I think that we need to respect what that virus can do. But especially in this country, 
there has been such a climate of fear created by the administration that people are so confused they don't know where to go. And there are answers to that, um, such as you can control how afraid you are and then step back and really look at all the facts. Look at what people are really saying, not just the administration, but the scientists, other well-known and respected people. And you can easily tell who's well-known and respected, notwithstanding what anyone says about any particular individual. There are mm. track records to show who you can trust or who you can at least respect. People like Anthony Fauci, who have been very intelligent, even yeah. though he's been attacked by a lot of people. But the reality is he has spoken very intelligently. He has always backed up his statements by facts. But people are too afraid to pay attention to that because we're supposed to have a role model in the leader of our administration, and uh, he has not become much of a role model. And I'm not speaking politically, I'm speaking character-wise. Yeah. Uh, he has not been a role model, but people still expect a role model. And so the result of that is that we, we see more fear. Yeah. Mentioned in your introduction about your experience and on September 11th, didn't mention that you released a bestseller in 2011, Thunderdog, the story of a blind man, a guide dog, and the triumph of trust at ground zero. Can you tell us about your experience on that morning? What were you doing in the towers? Like, were you working there? And, and tell us about that experience. Sure. Let me, let me start by setting the scene a little bit. I've been blind my entire life. Mm. Um, I was told by my parents that you can grow up to do anything you want, even though when it was discovered that I was blind at four months, the doctors told my parents to send me to a home because no blind child could ever accomplish anything or amount to anything in society. My parents said, you're wrong to the learned medical profession in Chicago, Illinois. And I grew up believing that I could do whatever I chose to do with my life. <clears throat> so I've always operated that way. And I've always operated also trying to understand what people expect whenever I'm on a job. So for example, on September 11th, I was the Mid-Atlantic Region Sales Manager for a computer company, a Fortune 500 company. And I was required to open an office for Quantum Corporation, which I did, on the 78th floor of Tower One. As the Mid-Atlantic Region Sales Manager, the leader of that office, if I were going to truly do my job well, I needed to be able to do what anyone would expect any leader to do. So for example, if I were going to take guests and staff to lunch because we were in the middle of a meeting and we were going to negotiate some contracts, I couldn't say, well, I don't know how to get anywhere because I'm blind, so I'm just gonna to have to hold on to someone's arm. If, if I'm gonna set a good example, <clears throat> and if I'm gonna set the groundwork for me being able to be a good negotiator, I needed to say instead, oh, you want a deli sandwich? There's a pl great place downstairs called Fine and Shapiro. Let's go there. Mm. Unfortunately, Fine and Shapiro is not there anymore. I don't, and I don't think they, I don't even know if they opened in the new towers. I, I was back there last year or earlier this year and I didn't see it. But anyway, I needed to be able to say, let's go and lead the way. Yeah. And the point of saying that is that I spent a lot of time when no one else was around and I was doing other things, I spent a lot of time literally learning the entire complex. And I say that because sighted people don't do that. Sighted people look for signs. Yeah. Oh, I need to know where the emergency exit is. I'll see it. It's marked. I can go to the sign. That works until the room is filled with smoke. Airlines always talk about 
If there's an emergency, follow the floor lighting system that will lead you to the emergency exit. Yeah, that works great until the cabin's filled with smoke and you can't see the lights. Yeah. So I make it my responsibility to know everything I can about emergency situations. And I did that in the World Trade Center and actually got to the point where every day I went in, I would mentally ask myself, do you know what you need to do if there's an emergency today? And sometimes that led me to discover new things, which was cool. But it also put me into a mindset that I could deal with emergencies if they came along. Well, never expecting it to occur, but it did happen on September 11th at 8.45 in the morning. Um, I was in my office with a colleague, David Frank, from our corporate office. And David was there because the two of us were going to be conducting some training sessions for our reseller partners. He was there to talk about pricing because he had responsibility for that. I, he didn't work in New York normally, he was in California. So we were gonna train people how to sell our products. And in fact, um, some early arrivals had gotten to our office. Anyway, at 8.45, we were just creating a list to send to the security people of who would be attending when the building suddenly lurched and then it literally began to tip in kind of a southwesterly direction, I believe. We had no idea what was happening. Our guests were in our conference room. David and I were in my office. And, and I said, well, maybe it was an explosion. And, and David said, well, yeah, but I, we didn't really hear much of an explosion. We heard a kind of a thump. And then he said, well, was it an earthquake? And I love to joke and, and say David was born in New York, even though he was working in California. So he didn't know about earthquakes. I grew <laughs> up in California. The building wasn't shaking around. It was going in one direction because the building was being pushed by the airplane. Imagine fastening a spring to a table and then just pushing the top of the spring. And that's what the yeah. building was doing. It's built with expansion joints. So the joints were expanding and that was keeping the building from breaking apart, but we didn't know how far we were gonna move. I tell people that I think we may have moved as much as 20 feet. I was standing in a doorway Whoa. and David and I actually said goodbye to each other because we thought we were about to take a 78 floor plunge to the street below. Then the building stopped and I didn't even realize I was holding my breath until it started to move back. And I remember letting out my breath it became vertical and I went back into my office and I met my guide dog, Roselle, who had been asleep under my desk. Her official job, she said, was to greet people when they came in and between greetings, she went back to sleep. So <laughs> she came out from under my desk and I took her leash and said, heel to come around on my left side because if anything happened going forward, I wanted to make sure we didn't get separated. Mm. As soon as she sat down, the building dropped straight down about six feet. What? And, I, see, I didn't know. Wow. I thought I knew a lot of details, but I never really heard it from a you know, first person perspective. So, so imagine what I said before. Imagine a spring fastened to a table. Mm. The spring went vertical. The, the expansion leaves dropped back down. The spring mm. went to its normal configuration. So the building did exactly what it was supposed to do. And as soon as it did, David turned and looked out the window and started yelling, oh my God, there's fire and smoke above us. We got to get out of here right now. We can't stay here. There are millions of pieces of burning paper falling outside our window. And I could hear some of that. I could hear debris falling outside our window, but I said, slow down, David. And he said, no, we got to get out of here right now. We can't stay here. The building's on fire. And our guests began to scream and started moving toward our exit. Um, and I said again to David, slow down. And, and our guests, I think, stopped and were listening. And he said, no, we got to get out of here. And I said, slow down, David. Don't worry about it, we'll get out. And then he finally used what I call the big line. You don't understand, you can't see it, which is what sighted people always say, that we don't know because we can't see it. 
the problem wasn't what I wasn't seeing because David told me that there were millions of pieces of burning paper falling outside the window. I could hear it. He said that there was fire and smoke above us. I believed him. So I had the information that he had. But David, being blinded by fear, was not seeing what I was seeing. Namely, a dog sitting right next to me, wagging her tail and not giving any fear reaction that a dog who thought it was in danger would give. And having been working with guide dogs since 1964, so now some 37 years later, I know what dogs do in different kinds of situations. And she wasn't giving me any indication that she was in danger. And I knew that I could trust her reactions because of my knowledge and the fact that because of what I had set in my own brain as a mindset, I was able to truly step back and look at all the information going on around me to make a decision as to what to do. I finally got David to focus and said to get our guests to the stairs, start them down, then come back and we'll leave. So he did that. I called my wife at home like two minutes after it happened. Yeah. I told my wife and she wanted to know more. And I said, I don't know anything. I'll call you as soon as I can. And a lot of reporters have said to me since, well, of course, you didn't know what happened because you couldn't see it. And as I say to them, excuse me, the last time I checked, Superman was a fictional character. There is no such thing as x-ray vision. The airplane hit 18 floors above us on the other side of the building. How would we know? Yeah. And the reality is no one knew as we were going down the stairs, no one knew. Well, David came back. We uh, did a little bit more work around the office trying to shut off some equipment because we knew we wouldn't be back for a while. And then we left deciding that we didn't have time to shut everything down and we didn't want to stay needlessly not knowing what might change we went to the stairs and started down and i remember smelling the fumes from burning jet fuel and it took me about four floors to realize that i was smelling jet fuel burning because i have been around a lot of airports but never expected to associate that with the world trade center yeah but as soon as i smelled it and recognized it i said it to other people around me and they went yeah we were trying to figure it out you're right this airplane fuel, we must have been hit by an airplane. That's all we knew all the way downstairs. Now, going downstairs, there were a couple of times that people started to lose it. And one woman, when we were about 10 floors down, said, I can't go on. We're not going to make it out of here. I can't breathe. Literally about eight or nine of us just stopped and surrounded her on the stairs and had a group hug right there. Um, Roselle, my guide dog, was giving her kisses. And we all said things like, come on, you can do it. Let's keep going. And she was able to go. But I tell you that to get to David, because at about the 50th floor, David said, Mike, we're going to die. We're not going to make it out of here. Now, in addition to having a master's degree in physics, I took uh, courses and obtained a secondary teaching credential, including the secret course they never tell you about, which is how to yell at students. I love to say that. (laughs) And I said to David in my best teacher nasty voice, stop it, David. If Roselle and I can go down these stairs, so can you. And he told me that that brought him out of his funk, which is what I intended in all seriousness. But then he did something that I think was one of the most incredible and best things I experienced that day. He said, Mike, I got to concentrate on something. So I'm going to walk a floor below you and shout up to you, whatever I see. And he did that. So as I was walking down, he went faster and got a floor below me. And uh, when I got to the 49th floor, I could hear him, hey, Mike, everything is okay here on the 48th floor, uh, going on down the stairs. And he did that all the way down. So why is that so incredible? Did I need him to do that? I did not. 
because you got to go down anyway. But what David did was he suddenly became a focal point by shouting, 47th floor, everything's good, heading on down. Or a little bit later, hey, I'm on the 44th floor where the Port Authority cafeteria is, not stopping, going down. David became a voice for everyone above him and below him to hear so that everyone, even though they couldn't see him, knew that somewhere on the stairs, people were okay, yeah. which had to give them something to focus on. And I am certain that kept so many people calmer and more confident about going down the stairs. And I think that's one of the coolest things that I remember of that day. And, and I think it's important because he did help people become less fearful. Yeah, it we sounds kept, like by, for himself as well, by focusing on basically other people and something else than him, himself you know, freaking out, helped him cope with it. Yeah, and I don't know whether he ever thought about how he really helped so many people. He was shouting up to me, but he did help so many people going down the stairs. And when he got to the 30th floor, he told us the firefighters were coming and we, uh, we had to deal with them a little bit because they wanted to escort me down the stairs. And I said, I don't need any help. And they insisted that they had to help me because I couldn't see. And I said, I got my guide dog and the firefighters started petting Roselle, which is not something you're supposed to do. Guide dog and harness don't pet the dog ever because mm. it distracts the dog. And finally, the only way I could get them to let us go down the stairs was to say, I got my friend David who could see here, we're good. And and they turned to the lead firefighter, turned to David and said, you're with him. And David said, yeah, leave him alone, he's fine. And they went on up and we went down. I tell you that because I didn't want their help as I knew that they were a team. Mm. And if one of them helped me, they'd have to split up their load. They all had to carry up the equipment that they used to fight the fire. They would be down one person who needlessly was helping me go down the stairs. Other people would have to take his load of whatever he was carrying to fight the fire. And I didn't want to hear later that some firefighter was helping a blind man go down the stairs and, and he wasn't where other people were and somebody got injured and somebody then equate that to, well, that wouldn't have happened if they had all their team. And I didn't need his help to go down the stairs. I didn't want to break up that team. Um, and, and we didn't, but the problem is, that as he left us, he gave Roselle some some pets. Mm. And that may have very well been the last unconditional love he ever got in his life because Roselle gave him some kisses back. Yeah. And I don't know whether he made it down before the building collapsed or not. But we kept going down. We got to the first floor. We got outside and we started walking north on Broadway. <clears throat> and um, we got to Vesey Street, I think, when David said, I want to take pictures, I can really see the fire very clearly from where we are. <clears throat> so he stopped and started taking some pictures. I tried to call my wife. And then suddenly a police officer yelled, get out of here, it's coming down now. And we heard this rumble that became this deafening roar. Oh it was God. Tower 2, probably about 100 yards away from us collapsing. And <clears throat> the issue with that was that everyone turned and ran. Everyone went every which way. David turned and ran. He was gone. Mm -hmm. And so I turned Roselle around and we started running back. I think that was the time I was most afraid, but still I focused on encouraging Roselle. And, and all the time as we were walking, I said, good girl, keep going. What a good dog. Cause I wanted her to know that I was okay. My voice told her that I wasn't afraid. So she didn't need to worry about me and could focus on her job. And she did. 
So that we kept... just have to run away from the, the, the rumble or the sound at that point, or just could you feel that everyone was generally running in a certain direction? Oh, all of the above. I yeah. mean, I knew the building was collapsing. Yeah. Um, so I, and I also knew where we were. And if the building hadn't gone straight down, but gone sideways, we wouldn't be having this interview. But I did run and um, turned on to Fulton Street, the next street back the way we had come, actually caught up to David. And then we kept running. We were caught in the dust cloud and got out of it by going down into a subway station. And there's a lot more to that story, but yeah. people could, could buy Thunderdog and, or they could hire me to come and tell the whole story, which I would love. <laughs> but the, uh, the fact is that we, we did escape it. <clears throat> and then we were in the subway station for a while and then came up and David looked around and said, oh my God, there's no Tower 2 anymore. And we walked away from there and then got about a quarter mile away when we heard the same sound that we had heard when Tower 2 was collapsing. I describe it as kind of a freight train and a waterfall. You could hear glass breaking and tinkling and metal collapsing. And then this is white noise sound as the building collapsed. And we knew it had to be Tower 1. And sure enough, we, we hunkered down and waited for everything to subside. And then when we got up, David said, oh my God, there's no World Trade Center anymore. It's gone. Um, later that day, I got home, and the next day was when I reached out to people at Guide Dogs for the Blind, where I've gotten all of my guide dogs, because some of them had visited us in the World Trade Center, and I knew that they would eventually remember that they had been there with us. So I called, and one of the people we spoke to was the Director of Public Information Services for Guide Dogs, and she wanted to write a, a story about us. Guide dog's always looking for opportunities to do that, and I was fine with that. She did, and she also said, you know, I'll bet this is going to be really big. What TV show do you want to go on first? And I, I, you know, I was in shock. I didn't even think about it. I just, oh, Larry King Live. Two days later, we had the first interview with Larry, and it was the first, as you said, of five interviews. And then the media got the story, and over the next six months, we had hundreds of interviews. And I will say that probably doing those interviews was the best thing that I could do because it made me talk about it. I put myself in that situation, but I felt that if it would help other people move on from September 11th and teach them about blindness and so on, and what guide dogs really do, that it was worth doing. <clears throat> but it also led to people asking me to come and speak and talk about the lessons to be learned yeah. from September 11th. And so we've been doing that ever since. Now, of course, with COVID-19, there's no travel, so we're reinventing and we're going to start this this whole concept of a of a teaching and coaching program called blinded by fear to tell people you can control your fears you need to learn how to do it but you do have the ability to to control fear and be able to then assess whatever is going around you in any kind of a situation especially traumatic unexpected not good changes in your life yeah you touched on on fear again then pre and post 9-11 do you think your approach to fear or you as a person changed? I'm not sure that there was a big change in me relating to fear and so on, because I learned early on to observe what goes on around me and to try to take in all the information I could to analyze the situation. And I've been on many street crossings in places like Boston, which are notorious for drivers, not necessarily totally paying attention to what they're doing <laughs> yeah. um, at the time that I lived in in the Boston area, it had the highest accident per capita rate in the country. So I could be crossing a street thinking that the traffic was all going the same way that I was and suddenly a car turns and I have to pay attention enough to get out of its way. 
it could happen that <clears throat> I couldn't react in time, but I've been very fortunate. I hear things and have learned to react and make decisions. And of course, using a guide dog um, also helps if I'm crossing a street and suddenly the dog pulls back and doesn't want to cross. I'm not going to say what's going on. Come on, you dumb dog. I'm going to react and follow whatever the dog is doing because that's the dog's job. Guide yeah. dogs don't lead people around. The purpose of a guide dog is to help us by walking, keeping us safe when we walk. So if I'm crossing a street and suddenly the dog jerks back, I'm going to follow that dog and go back. It's called intelligent disobedience. The dog wasn't obeying my command to go forward. And probably it, it did what it did because there was a hybrid vehicle coming and I would never have heard it. My job is to know where to go and how to get there. And unfortunately, so many people think, well, you're blind, you can't do that, which is totally wrong. Blind eyesight is not the only game in town. You know, I love to, to say to people that when Thomas Edison invented the electric light bulb, all he was doing was inventing a device to help by providing a reasonable accommodation for light dependent people who can't get around in the dark like normal people. And, and that's, in, in a broad sense, that's true. You guys don't do well in the dark. Uh, and so you have light bulbs. We all use different kinds of technologies to help us. So why should it be different for me than you? I don't happen to be able to use light to give me the same information that you get. You talked about you feel like your fear wasn't different before and after in that situation. And it sounds like the, the scariest point or where your fear was highest was maybe when the building was falling and you were outside and had to, had to run. I mean, right. is that the most scary time? And could we break down what are scary situations, bearing in mind that, you know, being in the dark, et cetera, is, is not a problem for you. Whereas a lot of people, sometimes the dark is something that people associate with fear. Right. What September 11th did was validated the views that I had, which gave me more confidence. So in that sense, it's, it, it changed. And over time, as I thought more about it, it has clarified and enriched my understanding of, of being afraid. And you're right, running away from Tower 2 was the scariest time because none of us could know what the building was going to do. Um, I did not know that it was designed to pancake straight down. Mm. But I, I, so I didn't know what it was going to do. But at the same time, I knew that, and this is the way I've always operated, I can only do what I can do. And what I realized is that mo one of the biggest problems that we all have is that we think that we can and we always want to control everything that goes on in our lives. And what I tell people is that you need to learn not to worry about the things that you cannot control. If you let those worries and fears and concerns about the things over which you don't have influence take over your life, you're going to drive yourself crazy. Worry about the things that you can control and the rest will take care of itself as best it can. And the, the point of that is we did not, for example, have any control over the terrorist crashing four, three aircraft into buildings, including the Pentagon and a fourth one missing over Pennsylvania. Um, on the other hand, the people on flight 93 did exercise some control by attempting to take the aircraft back. And although the plane crashed, it didn't do what the terrorists wanted. But for most all of us, although we didn't have control over September 11th happening as an event, and I'm not convinced that we could have guessed in advance and figured it out, 
we do have control over how we deal with it. We do have control over our mental attitudes about something like that. So that's what we need to focus on is how we deal with it, although we can't necessarily deal with that particular event. And I realize that all the more as after September 11th, people kept saying to me, well, we got to get back to normal. And I always didn't like that. I got somewhat angry mm. um, whenever I heard that. And I finally realized that, of course, you don't like that because you have subconsciously, and this is when it became real for me, consciously recognized normal will never be the same again. Of course, we can't get back to normal because if we did, the same thing would occur again. Normal is different. And what we need to do is to develop our mindsets as to how we deal with a new normal. Yeah, and very relevant now, now as well. Yeah. And we're doing that now as well. Definitely. Well, we're moving into the alpha round now. And I like to start off with, is there a particular quote that you like? It's like an all-time favorite quote or just anything that springs to mind. Your kind of approach to life. Guide Dog Wisdom is one of the sections in Thunderdog. And in number two in Guide Dog Wisdom, one of my favorite quotes that um, I think I invented, although it's possible someone said it before me, is don't <laughs> let your sight get in the way of your vision. Because too many people do that. Don't let your sight get in the way of your vision. Um, I think that's so important because it's a lot more than one sense. And, and your vision invariably is all to do with your mental attitude, how you imagine, um, which is unfortunately all the more ruined by television. Television tends to limit your imagination. And I think that we, we ought to be curious people um, and view life as an adventure. So don't let your sight get in the way of your vision. Do you listen to audiobooks or do you do Braille or how do you consume information in that way? Braille is the only means of reading and writing available to me, just like print is the means of reading and writing that's available to you. And every person who is blind should learn Braille. I define blind as a condition that when your eyesight diminishes to the point where you have to use alternatives to your eyes to accomplish things, you ought to learn blindness techniques and view yourself as a blind person. It doesn't mean you don't use your eyesight, but you learn the other techniques because the two sets of techniques will enhance what you do. So Braille is extremely important. And yes, I use Braille, but I also read a lot of audiobooks and I've taught my wife to listen to, to audiobooks. So we pipe books through the house yeah. a well, lot now these days. On that note, what is uh, or has been a particular impactful book for you to read outside of your own books? Um, or maybe <laughs> one you'd like to recommend. Is, is there any other book? <laughs> one of my favorite books is surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman, Adventures of a Curious Fellow. Richard Feynman was the greatest physicist of the second half of the 20th century. And he wrote that book um, about his life. And even in the first chapter, one of the things he talks about, which has always stuck with me, is that whenever he and his father were somewhere, his father would ask him questions like, why is that bird able to fly? Because aerodynamically, they shouldn't necessarily be able to do that. And he taught Dr. Feynman to be curious and to always wonder and investigate. And that has always stuck with me. If you want to find out more and continue the conversation with you, what's the best sure. way to connect? So they can go to www.michaelhingson.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L. 
M-I-C-H-H-I-N-G-S-O-N.com. They're welcome to email me at mike at michaelhingson.com. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast. Live limitless. If you like the podcast, you will love the book. The book is Awaken Your Alpha, Thousand Tactics to Thrive, and it's available on Amazon. This is what my favorite author, Robert Greene, had to say about the book. I liked your book a lot. I liked the mix of, of past and present that you brought in. I was very impressed. I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed it. It was, it was a good, it was entertaining. That's what you know, and, and, I, and I actually learned it provoked some interesting thoughts for me. So it's a great book and, and you're only going to be going up. 